This podcast is brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Keep Joy on air by becoming a member, a subscriber or donate. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community. The Informer Daily is recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. At Joy 94.9, we'd like to pay our ongoing respects to Elders past, present and emerging. The Informer is funded in part by the Community Broadcasting Foundation, cbf.com.au. And of course, the members and donors of Joy 94.9. You can help us by visiting joy.org.au and become a member or donate. Any amount helps us bring you community-powered radio. Thank you. This is the Informer Daily for Wednesday, the 15th of April, 2020. I'm your host, Arian Potts. Today... Ronnie Scott, founder of literary magazine The Lifted Brow, has his first novel out today. We sit down with him and have a chat about his new book. The last six months have seen a lot of Australians donating to charities, especially for bushfire causes, but there have been a few hitches in that process. We find out from an expert what to look out for when donating. But first, this update. This is Dee Mason with the Joy News COVID-19 update for Wednesday the 15th of April. Prime Minister Scott Morrison is urging teachers to go to work in order to keep schools open for students unable to learn from home. In a social media video, the Prime Minister thanked teachers for the work they've done already and emphasised the need for them to continue working despite fears they could contract the virus if they leave their homes. In order to make schools as safe as possible, parents who can keep their children at home are being urged to do so. An app that can track people's movements and who they spend time with is being developed by the government with the help of private firms in the hopes it could speed up the virus tracking process and more efficiently contain outbreaks. Australians will be asked to voluntarily download the app and if more than 40% of people do this, then social distancing restrictions could be eased earlier. It is expected the app will be completed in a fortnight. The IMF is reporting that Australia's economy could shrink by 6.7% this year as it faces the worst recession since the Great Depression. There are also predictions in the newly updated World Economic Outlook that Australia's economy will likely be one of the worst impacted in the Asian region. Treasurer Josh Frydenberg's response to this pointed to further predictions that Australia's economy will rebound quickly and significantly. American President Donald Trump says the US will stop funding the World Health Organization over his belief they poorly managed the COVID-19 pandemic. The president claims American lives could have been saved had the World Health Organization better investigated China's early reports on COVID-19. This criticism comes less than a month after Trump praised Chinese President Xi Jinping for his response to the virus. Although funding will freeze for now, Trump says America will still work with the World Health Organization to pursue what he termed meaningful reforms. The first reports detailing how COVID-19 is impacting American hospital staff have been released, showing between 10 and 20% of COVID-19 cases in America are healthcare workers. The report from the US Centre for Disease Control and Prevention also reveals that medical professionals have lower hospitalisation rates than the general population. It's back to school time in Victoria, though most students will remain at home as the state has transitioned to remote learning. The children of essential workers and students who may face difficulty learning from home are returning to their physical campuses, but all other students will be advised to stay home for the entirety of Term 2. 
Victorian Premier Daniel Andrews is introducing a $500 million package for landlords and renters. The package will come in two parts, the first being a relief in land tax for landlords who enter mediation with tenants experiencing hardship, and the second being rent assistance for renters who have lost 30% or more of their income. Hospital staff in Tasmania's northwest say the outbreak in the region is due to shortages of personal protection equipment and communication breakdowns. These allegations are being denied by spokespeople for the Northwest Private Hospital, which is one of two hospitals currently shut down due to the outbreak. You're listening to the Informer Daily on Joy 94.9 and across Australia on the Community Radio Network. When the bushfires raged across the continent this summer, Australians gave a tremendous amount to charities. Some small campaigns ballooned into huge amounts, and that caused a few problems for making sure donations went to the right place. We spoke to Sanjaya Kurupu from UniSA about what you should look out for when donating. A lot of people have been contributing to various charities through different means. You know, the most obvious one is the charity's website, but sometimes you get appeals through social networks, and that's not always a good idea. Why is that? It's a really good question, and I have to start off by saying I'm not trying to discourage people from being generous. Right now, we need it more than ever. But when you contribute through social media, uh, for instance, through Facebook, you're actually channeling money through other platforms like PayPal Giving Fund. Mm-hmm. And the PayPal Giving Fund has actually been quite controversial over the last few years. In 2017, in the U.S., a class action lawsuit was filed by some donors against the PayPal Giving Fund, claiming that they were misled and that their gifts never reached their intended charities. This Mm. is because the Giving Fund retains exclusive control over all donations. That's specifically stated in its terms of service. So when you're contributing to a charity, you obviously want to make sure the money gets to them so they can do the good work that aligns with what you intended. Mm-hmm. However, if you're channeling through these third-party websites, you're not necessarily guaranteed that's going to happen. There's been a particularly big example with a bushfire fundraiser here. That's exactly right. So uh, Celeste Barber, uh, who's a, a prominent figure in Australia, she was trying to raise a relatively modest sum for the New South Wales RFS. And mm-hmm. her target was initially only $30,000. But because of the popularity of her campaign, she ended up raising more than $50 million. Mm-hmm. Now, it was a well-intentioned campaign. It had the right heart. However, because of the specific uh, NSW RFS trust fund that they were trying to donate that money to, it meant that the $50 million couldn't later be distributed to other charities or other states or, for instance, firefighters who'd lost their lives and their families, etc. Mm-hmm. It had to only go to that one particular charity, and that's just purely because of the way that trustees were set up. Mm-hmm. So, unfortunately, it meant now that there's a lot of legal discussions taking place about how they can distribute funds to other worthwhile causes which are affected by the bushfire um unfortunately there's no resolution yet and that means that people who need access to that fund can't get that immediate relief what are some ways that could have been avoided to be honest uh, probably that the first uh thing that anyone considering doing a, a fundraising campaign especially via social media should do is think about who you're trying to target uh, one thing that Celeste probably didn't realize was that the popularity of a campaign would just achieve 
so much money uh, in, in funds uh, for, for bushfire causes. So you need to think about contingencies. What's going to happen if you raise more than your target? Do you have a, another charity that you think if we get more than $30,000, we're going to donate the excess to another charity being this particular cause? Mm. Or if we get greater than $100,000, then all excess funds will go to another particular cause. So that's one thing that they could have thought about is what are the contingencies in terms of divvying up money that might um, uh, come to us? That's more than what we think. Yeah. The other key thing that could have probably happened is to talk to a few charities operating in the space, first of all, and get their expert understanding of what we should do as a fundraiser to channel money to them in the best possible way. So a way that doesn't create more burden on those charities. Um, for instance, they might have their own particular uh, systems and processes to getting money quickly. It might just be a bank account or there might be other mechanisms that they use, etc. So if we just talk to the experts first before setting these fundraising campaigns, we might be able to actually circumvent some of the issues that we face later. You know, talking about contingencies and, you know, thinking ahead is is all well and good, but the average person setting up a, a, a fundraiser on a social media site probably doesn't necessarily have that background or may not be thinking like that. Do you think there's a role for the platform to be asking these questions? Absolutely. Um, so uh, there, there's quite a few prominent platforms. GoFundMe, for instance, is another one. Um, that many people use to do fundraising for personal courses or for charitable purposes as well. Um, but many of these platforms try and assuage uh, like any any particular attention to them doing anything. So they want you to be responsible for verifying the information on that particular website. Um, they try and devolve any responsibility. So GoFundMe, for instance, specifically say we do not and cannot verify the information that users of campaigns supply nor do we represent or guarantee that the donations will be used in accordance with any fundraising purpose. So for them, they just want to create a platform and then let the market deal with it. So the people essentially have to exercise uh, precautions and uh, quote-unquote buyer beware when they come to uh, raising donations and uh, for, for charities as well. When you raise money through, say, Facebook, how long does it take to get to the charity? Uh, so with Facebook, uh, from my understanding, it's 15 to 90 days. Uh, so that's an, another reason that going directly to the charity might be more beneficial for the charity itself because they get access to your funds much faster and then they can use it on uh, employing their staff and actually delivering the services and goods that you think are going to be delivered. Whereas with Facebook uh, in Australia, it primarily goes to the PayPal giving fund that I was talking about earlier. Um, and that does take 15 to potentially 90 days to finally end up with the charity. So with uh, Celeste Barber's campaign, that's what a lot of people um, started raising a fuss about on social media. They were saying, well, can't Facebook and can't the PayPal Game Fund do something to expedite the process so the funds can get to the people that need immediate relief because waiting three months to potentially receive a payment uh, is, is too long, especially when people were potentially homeless, uh, when they needed access to food, clothing, etc. That's Sanjaya Kurupu from UniSA speaking with me this morning. This is the Informer Daily on Joy 94.9 and across Australia on the Community Radio Network. The first novel by queer author Ronnie Scott has just been released. Ronnie is the founder of the Australian literary magazine The Lifted Brow, and he's also a lecturer in writing and publishing at RMIT University. He sat down with Nicholas Kamenyer-Sandry to discuss his new book, The Adversary. 
Ronnie Scott, hello. Hi, nice to talk to you. Nice to meet you. Um, you're a author who's just released a novel, The Adversary. Yes, this is true. This is what they tell me. So it's out this morning, and this is the first interview that I've done for it today. So I'm very happy to talk to you. Awesome. And um, would you like to just tell us a little bit about yourself to start off? Yes, happy to. So I, um, I've mostly been a writer of, of nonfiction for kind of the last 10 years I've been kicking around. Um, I, um, I started the literary magazine Richard Brow when I was in Brisbane as an undergrad student uh, in 2007, and I moved down to Melbourne about a year later. And nowadays, I am an academic at RMIT, so I teach in the creative writing program. And probably the main thing that I've been doing for the last six or seven years is working on this book, which ended up being a very short book. You can read it in a couple of hours, but it took me a while to work on. Um, and I feel quite emotional, actually, about sort of setting it, um, setting it aside and pushing it off into the world, which is what's happening today. Um, but it's a, it's a novel called The Adversary, as you said. And The Adversary is the story of a very close friendship between a protagonist and his best friend, Dan, who he lives with. Um, it's kind of a coming-of-age story and a summary story. And they live in a house together. Um, they're in their early 20s. And they realize, kind of at different paces, but towards the start of the book, that their friendship needs to change. Uh, and so the book is the story of them struggling to change their friendship while maintaining some relationship with each other. And they kind of do that through going out into the world and meeting other people. Um, yeah. So I think that that's, that's this, this kind of strange beast that I've been grappling with for, for years now, trying to figure out the right way to tell this story. I noticed that there was a lot of focus in on sort of living as a gay person and what that does to specifically your relationships. I even noticed because I um, was uh, straight passing for a while and then I came out later um, that it has a rather like sort of resonant portrayal of having just normal friendships within queer circles that, you know, there's this weird dynamic between gay men that doesn't really exist between straight men. And I absolutely loved that the novel kind of explores that. Can you tell me a little bit about that and what you put into it? Yeah, totally. So I, I, I think that that was the idea that I started with was that I wanted to have like a best friendship at the center of the novel. And I wanted it to be a best friendship between two gay men. And in part, that's because, I mean, I've always had close friendships and professional friendships and the friendship circle, but I've never had one of those like incredibly tight, incredibly, uh, uh, incredibly like predictive and, and like close and beautiful and dangerous ways, friendships between gay men that, that, that can sometimes happen. And I've seen a lot of them and I'm really interested in them. And so I know, I knew that I wanted to explore it. And it was actually this kind of strange storytelling challenge to figure out how to tell how to tell the story of that friendship and the reason is that like over the course of a novel even a even a short novel even so even a novel that takes place over eight weeks like this one does like something has to change and grow and i thought well i i knew that friendship works a little bit differently to the kinds of relationships that or, the, or i guess the way that some relationships can develop or implode or get twisted or twist into themselves um, I guess a friendship can do all those things, but mostly what friendships do is they sort of support other areas of our lives and they 
you know, drift in and out of focus and they, and they can change in sort of in unexpected ways that don't follow um, the same paths as other relationships. And so, you know, I, I had, I had versions of the story at the start when I was still trying to figure out just what it would be, where there were secrets in the past of this friendship or where there were, there were kind of romantic ways for it to develop or ways to develop where they wouldn't be in each other's lives. And it was like the book started to be written properly, I guess, when I figured out that it had to work a bit differently to that. Like it couldn't have sort of rising tension and climax and all of that stuff that we, that we like from stories. I thought that that had to happen in the foreground and the friendship had to be this thing that changed a bit more quietly in the background while still being like the pulse of the book. And so that's when these other characters came in, which are sort of romantic characters, but they also offer like different models of friendship. They're sort of meant to be like satellite versions of the best friends at the center of the book. And then I guess the other interesting thing that happened writing about friendship, I'm like, I'm really glad that that's the thing that you picked up on and that it was interesting to you because obviously gay life has changed and public expressions of gay life in Australia have changed so dramatically over the six or seven years of the, of the writing of the book. Um, and same-sex marriage was one of the things that happened really prominently. There were plenty of others as well. And that made me think a lot, I guess, about the purpose of writing a friendship between two gay men and thinking, well, you know, for a time there when I was making sort of big structural decisions about the book, the, the main kind of gay relationship or the main kind of queer relationship that we saw even was something that was monogamous and romantic between two gay men like that seemed to be a lot of the, the messaging around same-sex marriage it seemed to be a lot of the way that people thought about about um about queerness and i thought well having a friendship at the center of a story is in some ways in dialogue with that like it's not i don't think that it's that it, it wasn't like with political purpose that i was writing it and i think that it's probably too much to say that having a friendship between two gay men at the center of a story is like an outwardly or meaningfully political thing to do. But I also think it's important to say that that was part of the context of like refining the friendship and the purpose of the friendship at the story and thinking, well, yes, there are very different kinds of relationships that come from queerness and that come from, from gay culture as well. And they can define the way that people comport themselves when they're alone, as well as, the way that they can comport themselves within friendships. Speaking on, because you mentioned that this book does delve into romance, uh, marriage and monogamy and stuff like that. The book is set after the Australian gay marriage plebiscite. And you kind of, or I kind of got the sense while reading it, um, that the book was dealing with sort of being a legacy to a certain history of gay culture. And that was also quite resonant with me, again, because of my you know, history as a straight passing person who came out later, um, that, you know, I kind of found that suddenly I was, you know, ha had heritage in this sort of history, even though I hadn't experienced it myself. Um, the protagonist is quite young and notes that, you know, despite not living through the HIV crisis himself, it does affect the way that he can go about his relationships. There are a couple of scenes where characters have HIV scares in the novel. And also, in regards to the plebiscite, uh, there is some discussion around what monogamy actually means for gay people as well. So can you talk a little bit about 
you know, how this novel portrays existing in sort of the larger context of uh, queer whole, queer culture and queer history. Yeah, for sure. I mean, what I think that one of the one of the decisions that I ended up making about the story was to uh, to have it be like a, a little bit historyless on the surface, right? Like you don't know very much about the characters, and again, it doesn't take place over a very long span of time. And as you say, the characters are pretty young. Like the narrator is probably about twenty-one. Um, you know, you don't even know his name, and that there are lots of like reasons to do that. Like it gives you, it hopefully gives gives him the capacity to surprise the reader. There are kind of uh, I don't know if you call them strategic reasons, but just struck you know writing reasons. But I really like this this sense, and this is a sense that I had when I was twenty one. Um, that when you and you probably had this as well. Um, you know, coming into coming into gay culture, having been a straight passing person, that you you get handed this collection of ideas and you get handed this collection of codes and actually handed is really the wrong the wrong like verb for it. It's more like you come upon it in strange orders and it interacts in a strange way with your ideas about what that culture will be. And a lot of that, you know, is to do with a sense of history, of course. And so this history is something that you suddenly possess but it's a history that you've grown up probably not in that much contact with. And I think that there are real kind of, yeah, there are real strangers, strangenesses to that as well as creative possibilities. So, you know, I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not 21, I'm in my thirties. And so as the book went on, I had to think a lot about, well, what would, what would a 21 year old who has this personality type be thinking about things like, like same sex marriage or monogamy or prep um, or ideas about HIV, which changed in a really live way while I was writing the book. Um, Like I think one of the most interesting things about prep is not prep itself, but it's, it's the different conversations that people can have around HIV and the U equals U campaign, the idea that an undetectable viral load is untransmissible. Like I think that all of those things open really interesting storytelling possibilities. Um, Yeah. I wanted to talk a little bit about how the novel is written because I think um, uh, what audiences will appreciate is that the writing style is quite comprehensible. It's quite easy to, to grok. But there's also a lot of like subtleties about it that I quite liked. Um, I'm sure there are way more than I noticed, but like one thing that I thought was quite fun is the protagonist has a lot of thoughts about certain things and, you know, will impart those thoughts quite often. But sometimes, sometimes, uh, often what happens is the protagonist will relay a thought and then the thought will be repeated in dialogue by a different character but without provocation from the protagonist and it kind of gave the impression that the protagonist actually isn't as insightful or witty, witty as he thinks he is because what he's thinking is what everyone else is thinking he just puts like sort of this weird kind of flair to it and um so i think that that is quite fun and i wanted to just sort of compliment you on uh how you wrote the novel i think it's written quite well but it's also written in a way that i reckon you know most people will be able to just pick up and read um do you do you think that uh you achieved what you set out to do with the uh the way that you wrote the book oh that's such a good question i think that the probably the strangest part about finishing a book is as well as like the thing that that lets you finish it 
is realizing that the like the thing that you have to work with that's on the page is pretty different from the thing that you set out to do. And like by finishing it, you're going to make that really worthwhile and make it a good thing. But there's this weird process of, I guess, like tricking yourself into thinking that you're not the person who wrote the drafts and like coming to terms with the thing that's actually on the page. So like, I, I think it's, it's a little bit strange to think about it in terms of achievement because at a certain point, like the job is to work with what you have and like answer answer to to yourself um in this this strange way and like it's it's odd to finish a book knowing that if i started the book now it would be completely different but you sort of have to do your past self the honor of of like trying to resolve it in the right way um yeah and and i guess to me like my thank you so much for saying that you that you like the style of the book um, I, my favorite kinds of books are ones where there is like a lot of kind of work going on under the surface, but that that does feel kind of fun to read. And I really wanted this to feel, you know, to have to have depth that it could that it could dip into once in a while, but to mostly be breezy and summary and quick. I really wanted it to feel kind of fleet, and I think that. That's often a like for me when I'm reading a good way to deliver ideas. Um, yeah, ideas that are that sort of slip slip under the surface while you're reading it. Um, and that's yeah, that's what I wanted to do. And at the same time, like I'm a really wordy person, and I really like like you know uh, strange syntax, and I like you know twelve dollar words, and I have a bunch of them in the book as well uh, because I don't know it's it's that's just my taste and i think that that you know you mentioned the way that the the book sometimes undercuts the character and he's not sort of as clever or as witty as he thinks and i had so much fun yeah like slipping in kind of ways to undercut the character and make him seem you know like someone who's interested in language and someone who is interested in thinking through ideas and definitely sees himself as that sort of person but who is absolutely unwise and stumbles into bad situations and creates them and makes them worse for himself all the time. Um, and to really make, like, make clear this difference between the way that you can present yourself to the world as well as the way that you can, that you can kind of debate ideas you know, baselessly or debate ideas, you know, with, with a friend who has similar experiences to you, but then, you know, this wonderful and challenging capacity of the world to come out of nowhere and change the way that you the way that you think. People are currently self-isolating. So what's the best place for people to pick up The Adversary by Ronnie Scott? Most people probably have a local bookstore near them that does free delivery. Um, I know that uh, that we have heard from so many local bookstores who are doing great business at the moment. Um, I think that fiction sales are doing really well, kind of despite, you know, I, I kind of thought that, that COVID-19 would be among all of the, the very, very significant reasons that it's devastating would also make it really tough to to sell the book because people can't walk into a bookstore and see, you know, a, a big stack of them and be curious and pick it up. But I think that most people, if they contact their local bookstore, they will probably deliver it to them. Um, and there's also audiobook and ebook, which are both out today. That was Ronnie Scott speaking with informer producer Nicholas Kamenyusandri about his new novel, The Adversary. That's it for us today. Thanks to everyone listening. We really appreciate it. If you've got feedback for us, send us an email, theinformer at joy.org.au. We'd love to hear from you, and we'll be back tomorrow. I'm your host, Arian Potts. Mahalo. Mahalo.
The Informer is funded in part by the Community Broadcasting Foundation, cbf.com.au. And of course, the members and donors of Joy 94.9. Thanks for listening to another Joy podcast brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA community media organisation, Joy. Help us keep Joy on air. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community.